Hello, America. My name is Paul Graves, and I'm the managing editor for Debtwire Municipals. I'm joining you from good old Boston, Massachusetts on Friday afternoon, May 10th. We also got in our New York office, our head of research, Greg Clark. And most importantly, we have two of our roving reporters coming to you from Charleston, South Carolina, Chuck Stanley and Patrick Ferguson, who are going to tell us a little bit more about this week's National Federation of Municipal Analysts annual conference that took place. Chuck and Pat, how are you guys doing down there in South Carolina? Fantastic. Yeah, pretty good. It's beautiful down here. All right. Well, it's cloudy up here, at least in Boston, but I'm glad you guys got good weather. So talking about things that are good, uh, tell us a little bit more about the three-day conference in terms of the topics you guys came across. And maybe I know the conference was from Wednesday until today. Maybe we can talk about any key themes that came up on the Wednesday part of the panel for you guys. Yeah, so in the, one of the first speeches on Wednesday, the opening day there was from uh, David Wessel, director of the Hitchens, the Hitchens Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy, a senior fellow uh, at the Brookings Institution. That uh, He talked about broad, kind of macro uh, landscape of the municipal worlds and also government finance. Mainly, his one of the big takeaway was just political risk, you know. And I think that this has been a topic that everybody's looking at, uh, looking at the executive branch, look at the the possible tariffs on China, uh, and then also political risk, and that translating down to municipalities. Here in Charleston, there's a BMW plant, and I know he mentioned that possible tariffs on on uh, China and other goods could um, have impacts for that, um, and as well as other throughout other municipalities around the country. Um, the other thing he mentioned was uh, municipal, the use of uh, capital in municipalities. Have, we haven't seen a large amount of spending, kind of limited amount of, of, of issuance, uh, and that and that kind of maybe translating to to problems down the line in in terms of a recession in uh in the next over the next few years thanks pat greg does it seem like political risk or just this whole willingness to pay issue is it is it grown in prominence from your perspective or it's the same as previous years or it it seems to be growing paul i i think uh your your uh, two topics can be combined into one political risk translates into willingness to pay and vice versa um, I think that uh, Platte County, uh, Missouri, for instance, uh, is a good example of that where, uh, and, and a lot of times these ideas start small and then kind of spread out from there. That's why I'm mentioning Platte County because it's a place that not a lot of people know about. I guess if you live in that metro area, you do the Kansas City metro area. But uh, they have uh, expressed a distinct unwillingness to pay for some annual appropriation bonds and uh, are currently in court fighting the trustee uh, on that. And uh, if that idea catches on, uh, that could make a big difference, to say the least, in terms of municipal credit because there are so many different – there are so many of these bonds outstanding in most states. Now, all states have – states have different legislation and rules about annual appropriation bonds – but uh, that's just one indication. Puerto Rico, of course, being another one where the control board there is uh, 
wants to repudiate about six to nine billion dollars in debt uh, because it was fraudulently issued. And uh, those are kind of two extremes, one huge issuer, one very small issuer. But I, I think that's an indication overall of, of how the idea might be catching on. All right. And Chuck, what were the highlights for you from the, the Wednesday sessions at the conference? So one of the one of the panels I saw on Wednesday uh, was on the uh, 2017 Tax Cuts and Job Jobs Act, and there were aspects of that that really seemed to flow into a lot of the other topics that were covered throughout the week. Uh, and the the main uh, aspects they they talked about was the cap on state and local uh, tax deductions, the elimination of the tax exemption for ad- advanced refunding uh, bonds, and um, also the, the cap on um, mortgage interest deductions. And the main takeaway, I think, from there is that all of those are going to make it difficult in one way or another, especially in, in higher tax states, to raise money through through uh, bond issuance. Uh, so one of the speakers there was Marshall Catane from J.P. Morgan. And a point that he made was that even though a lot of uh, taxpayers who – are going to make more than that $10,000 cap on state and local tax deductions are going to get some of that money back or, or it's going to even out because they're no longer paying the alternative minimum tax. There may be just a different feeling for taxpayers. And he used himself as an example, living in Westchester County, just uh, just north of New York City, saying that um, being subject to, to this tax on, on this cap on tax deductions, he's going to be far less likely to support uh, any sort of bond issuance to to uh, fund a, a public good, and you know he's a he's a muni guy, so somebody who isn't as as immersed in the world is probably going to be have less appetite for for any sort of you know fundraising at the county or city level. All right, and, and Patrick, were there any things that stuck out to you? Another interesting panel was on the modernization to the healthcare industry, uh, and there we had. Uh, Healthcare professionals talk about the future disruptors uh, of the industry, mainly being tech uh, companies. So we're looking at Amazon, uh, the purchase of PillPack, which I saw a commercial for today, which I've never heard of, haven't heard of it before. Um, and uh, different, they talked about capital allocations, uh, capital money raised from capital markets going to technology, whether it's in the past they would use refund facilities, uh, but that landscape is changing. And then also on the public side, I, there's a I'll paraphrase a quote from Joshua Baker, who's the head of the South Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. And uh, he said, Medicaid is an entitlement for the health provider, not, uh, not citizens. Uh, and so what he meant by that, you know, a lot of the, uh, the money going from Medicaid just goes straight to the, the health care provider, but there's no accounting for quality of care or the timeliness of care. Um, for for if the care was properly given, and all these things going into the future need to be monetized, need to be valued somehow. And so um, yeah, I thought that was that was quite interesting of the uh, the the future of the of the healthcare industry and how how it's changing and um, possibly improving. And the last panel I wanted to talk about for Wednesday uh, was uh, a panel discussing the infrastructure crisis, which. It was pretty timely given the uh, announcement that Democrats and, and uh, President Trump have at least theoretically a, a framework that they want to pursue 
to get a $2 trillion infrastructure deal done. The, the topic of the panel was really, one, is there an infrastructure uh, crisis? Uh, the RAND Corporation did an interesting study that shows you know, there's, there's a tremendous need for infrastructure funding in, in the uh, U.S., but when we talk about it as just one large $2 trillion you know, funding shortfall, it kind of ignores uh, the, the inequality of need. So uh, Deborah Knob- Knobman, who uh, was participated in the study uh, and spoke at the conference, made the point that you know, in you know, high-income areas where most of the infrastructure is, is locally um, or, or state-funded, uh, the condition of most, of most of these assets is pretty good. But when you go to the lower-income areas or when you're talking about federally-funded bridges, bridges and highways, those are in bad need of repair and in bad need of, uh, of, of funding. The other topic that came up in that panel was the need for climate change mitigation. And I think this is a topic that doesn't always find its way into the infrastructure uh, discussion. But the the main takeaway from that is that if the federal government and state and local governments aren't funding ways to mitigate the damage from future disasters now, they're going to wind up paying a lot more uh, if they're trying to repair damage after the fact. We've seen this in Puerto Rico. And a topic that came up uh, with regard to uh, climate change mitigation was outdated FEMA flood maps. So the the maps that FEMA uses to predict potential damages from floods, uh, they haven't been updated necessarily in recent years to account for the fact that you're going to have higher rainfall in a lot of these areas from climate change, and that's going to change the flood pattern. So if we're using outdated maps, that's going to change, you know, where local authorities know to invest in mitigation, uh, how much awareness there is among residents of their risk. So that's something that, you know, they hopefully will see, will see change, but something that maybe flies under the radar that, that I thought was uh, pretty poignant. All right, thanks, Chuck. So let's move on to the key themes from Thursday. Uh, I know we had pensions and securitizations that came up as topics. Tell us more, guys. Right, so um, there was a great panel on public pensions and and, and other post-employment benefits. And the discussion really was largely kind of going back to Patrick's point about political risk and political decisions impacting uh, creditworthiness. This is more uh, less exogenous risk and more the incentives that policymakers face uh, when they're making decisions about salary for public employees, pensions, um, and these OPEB benefits. And the point that really came across was that, uh, especially in uh, states and municipalities with very strong public sector unions, the policymakers and the unions themselves have a lot of incentives towards very generous pension benefits and also towards underfunding. And so you wouldn't think public employees would want to underfund their own pensions. Uh, but the point that was made was that for the employee trustees on these state pension boards, there's very strong legal protections in most cases for pensions. Um, and if they're underfunded in the short term, it makes it look as though there's less spending on pensions. It makes their pension costs look lower to policymakers. 
And it also leaves room in the budget for other spending that might be a priority to public employees. For policymakers, to the extent that the public employees uh, unions wield more power, pensions and OPEB offer an opportunity to give something to these important constituencies and satisfy them with, with something that's going to help them. But they don't have to pay. There's no upfront cost to it. So all the cost of this generally gets kicked over to the next administration, which if you're uh, you know, a mayor or a county commissioner, it's likely that you're not going to be in office still when, when the bill comes due. That's a very interesting insight that uh, th there is no incentive for adequate funding because if current employees or even current pensioners uh, believe that the money will be there regardless because of provision, it's provisions in the state constitution, for instance, then uh, the, their incentive would be more to pay current to give raises to current employees than it would be to, to fund to adequately fund pension contributions. Right, and a lot of times because those uh, those benefits are indexed to uh, employee salaries, the higher salaries then just increase the future uh, obligations. That's another excellent point. And then shortly after that, we, we heard a, a panel discussion on securitization. This is in the context of post-Detroit to now uh, Puerto Rico. And uh, the panelists mainly spoke about just the greater need for disclosure, but then also the, uh, the higher prevalence of structured deals, securitized deals, and uh, the, the diminishing use of the GO bond. And so we saw that uh, these issuers, they want to maintain these higher ratings and to, and to get these higher ratings they once had on their GO bonds, uh, they're having to securitize these deals. And uh, so, what, so it just kind of opened up a, a lot more complexity uh, in issuing new bonds. Uh, so the panelists talked about just including, uh, disclosing a lot more uh, financial information in the appendixes of the, of the documents and also just paying much more of attention on, on the investor side to the legal covenants. And it was, it was interesting because a lot of the, some of the people speaking from the investor side, it's like you have to at some point take a gamble and see what, what is this covenant going to hold up? Uh, can I break it? Is, uh, what, is this, what does this mean? Um, there's also discussion around how to protect, uh, protect those investments in a bankruptcy and uh, using remoteness, so uh, securitizing future tax revenues and putting that in a special purpose vehicle or an LLC, and then uh, and then using that to uh, to issue a bond or to invest in the in the entity. Um, so that's been that's been becoming more popular. But then there's also there's some discussion around that too. It's like, well, this isn't an ABS NASDAQ security where. How do you securitize or how do you value future tax revenues? And then also would that hold up in, in a, a court of law? So that has a lot of people looking at what, what is actually going to hold up in court. Um, and then there was, you know, talk of JEA where, you know, at first the utility uh, down in Jacksonville, Florida, which is trying to get out of its contract um, uh, over the local nuclear power plants. Which at, at first, I think uh, some uh, market participants they thought, of course you can get out of that. But with looking at these contracts again and kind of looking at the nature of a, a municipality and its in, 
um, people are really uh, second second guessing, second thinking uh, the legal covenants and that, and then and, and trying to figure out what it means and what it means for their uh, for a thirty year bond. Thanks, Pat. Greg, uh, just to close out this part, what's your view on this increase or the popularity of securitizations? Is this good for the market or good for the investor versus the issuer? Or what do you think? I, I'm not exactly sure how to predict this one, Paul, but my, my instincts tell me, based on experience in the last 10 years, that the best legal structure in the world will not save you if uh, the underlying borrower goes bad. By the last 10 years, I'm thinking of the financial crisis and whatever, and everything that happened there, a bunch of bond insurers that had been rated AAA, and moving on to Detroit and Puerto Rico, I just think that there are very few assurances left. The, the, legal, the legal decisions, especially in Puerto Rico so far, uh, leave me wondering what exactly we can rely on in terms of legal security. That's a good point that I think we'll probably be coming back to in future podcasts uh, because regardless of your legal the legal structure, if the issuer is, uh, I'll call it enthusiastic about trying to figure out ways of getting out of it, <laughs> it could lead to a prolonged process. So this is something we'll, do, we'll clearly want to watch. But let's move on to uh, the, the final day of presentations and i know uh, there was talk about millionaires and opioids and cannabis uh chuck uh, start us off yeah there was a great uh there was a great panel today on this issue of millionaire migration and, and how much of a concern it should be for higher tax states like california and new york and again this goes back to the tcja uh and the cap on deductions for state and local taxes so in i think New York and California, both the median taxpayer deducts more than that $10,000 cap. So it really hits uh, residents of the state pretty hard. So the question has been, is this going to drive, you know, a large outmovement of, uh, of taxpayers from high tax states, uh, New York, New Jersey, California, to lower or no tax states? And Florida is always the example because they don't have an income tax. And the the consensus here seems to be that, you know, on the margins, you know, this, this additional cost to taxpayer is, payers is going to be one more factor that, that factors into their decision about where to live. But taxes aren't the sole determinant of where people decide to live. And in most cases, they're probably not one of the top determinants. Um, you know, it's going to be uh, subservient to employment prospects, quality of life, overall cost of living. But uh, the consensus also seems to be that this issue of, of taxes falling disproportionately on, on higher income uh, taxpayers in, you know, fairly progressively taxed states like California and New York raises a broader issue of volatility where there's a very narrow band of uh, taxpayers in, in each of these states that pays a disproportionate burden of the uh, income tax. And for states that are relying on a really small number of residents to cover uh, a large portion of their income tax revenue, you have all sorts of risks for volatility there where um, 
a, a shock to the stock market could be disproportionately bad for, for New York or California because most of these higher income individuals are getting a lot of their income through capital gains rather through wages. So one of the last panels of the conference was on uh, opioid uh, use and the rise of cannabis. Uh, during the, the panel on uh, the, uh, the opioid crisis, I mean, some of the numbers they presented were just staggering. Uh, a report showed that the U.S. economy has lost $2.5 trillion uh, because of the opioid crisis, because of deaths, because of people exiting the labor force, because of uh, medical costs. And uh, this was, I think, since about 2000. Um, so a lot of the, you know, a lot of the research just shows that both municipalities and states have taken a huge hit over this opioid crisis. And now, as we know, many have lawsuits against some of these manufacturers. Uh, those lawsuits vary in size and in, in, in the accusations and their, their tactics to recoup the money. Uh, so that was going to be a large wait and see. I know a lawyer on the panel, he recommended that a settlement or settlements have to be the way. Otherwise, these lawsuits will just carry on uh, throughout the years and then rack up legal fees. Uh, so there was a big, there was a resounding push uh, for for states and for municipalities to 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 deal with their opioid crisis, to 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 cut it off, to to pursue legal action, uh, to pursue legislation that would somehow curb the this, this epidemic and. Some of the maps that they showed were also really interesting of just seeing the uh, one of the opioid use to spread just in waves across the U.S. You know, of course, down in uh, West Virginia, it's one of the high, highest uh, uh, states with the highest usages, but also up in Cape Cod. But then a few years later, you see just sweeping across the West. Um, so, yeah, it's been, there's been a, you know, a really big push to, uh, to, to, to cut this down. And on the other side, we have the, the cannabis industry, which tax revenue was just projected to grow. So I think that was kind of a nice, uh, went off in a different, a different direction there. Um, obviously, some concerns about what uh, increased marijuana use will do to local economies, uh, you know, less productivity. Uh, but then one of the key points is, you know, a lot of uh, cannabis users already do it. And so what states are trying to do, they're trying to, you know, bring the people in the black market over uh, into the legal market. And, and then panelists address questions um, on, you know, the legality of dealing with the federal government, uh, with banking, with loans. Uh, you know, there's some current legislation in there that would, uh, that would uh, prohibit the federal government from prosecuting employees at the, at the state and local level. And then, uh, you know, I think a few panelists, they thought there'd be some securitization over uh, marijuana tax revenues in the next three to seven years. Thanks, Pat. Greg, I think this is a good segue to remind listeners about the cannabis webinar we had a little over a week ago. Yeah, it's available still, Paul, uh, I think on our website. Um, If uh, anyone wants to listen to the... uh, to the recap, uh, is it available on iTunes as well? I'm trying to remember. Yes, I have been told. Uh, it's available on iTunes, or you can send a uh, a tweet to uh, at that wire municipals, and uh, we'll be sure that. And if you need to do that, we'll be sure that you get directions to uh, uh, obtain access to that webinar. 
All right, Pat and and Chuck, any closing thoughts on the conference and uh, what you guys got out of it? It was it was a good time. I think everybody was really happy to be here. It's uh, you know gorgeous out in this gorgeous city, and then uh, yesterday we got we got the tour of this old uh, movie theater that they restored and made it a drinking venue for us. So it was uh, it was really nice. Yeah, it was a great time. We got to see a little bit of the city. And uh, one thing that stuck out to me from the conference was just how all of these issues tend to sort of relate to each other from the issues with the, the uh, tax bill down to infrastructure and the burden uh, felt by state and local governments all the way to, to uh, pensions and the policy decisions beyond that and, um, and taxpayer migration. We call it the oh. great municipal chain of being. We could always count on Greg to give us something interesting to ponder. <laughs> so thanks, Pat and Chuck. Thanks, Greg. Special thanks to our podcast producer, Andrew Cosentino, who always makes sure that our mics sound right. I'm Paul Graves signing off. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. We'll talk to you next week.